Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord. We acknowledge this morning that we were made to worship. And Father, we thank you for that great gift that you gave to us of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, Lord, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be made right, and that we might have access to you. And Father, we also acknowledge that we are meant to live for you. And may we live for you faithfully here on this earth. And Father, today as we open up your word, as we look at the words that Jesus spoke, not only to his disciples, but to us 2,000 years later, Lord, may we understand how it is we're to live and how we are to serve you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In the history of sports, there are some coaching moments and, and some coaching speeches that seem to kind of transcend themselves a little bit and take on a, a lore of, of it all themselves. It's speeches that we remember and that other coaches use. And one of those, probably the best known of all, if you've ever played sports, at least if you're my age and older, which is getting to be a smaller group of people, but uh, it's, you know, the Newt Rockney speech that he gave to his team when came about when one of his player, star players became sick and was dying and, and Rockney was talking to him and he told him, he said, Coach, someday Notre Dame is going to have their backs up against the wall. They're not going to know what to do. They're not going to know how they're going to be able to win a game. He says, and you just tell them my story and ask them to win one for me. And so Newton gave that great speech one day and win one for the Gipper. And that's kind of gone down through the history of sports. Well, this young coach had decided he wanted a speech much like that. And so he had worked all off-season getting this speech ready. He had spent months and months and months. And it was the start of the season. He wanted to get right into it. So he assembled his team there as they gathered for the very first practice. And he has them all take a knee in front of him. And he begins to share this speech that he's been working on. And he's got all the inflection down. And he knows you know, when to get louder, when to get softer, when to pull out the emotion when to try to make them cry and, you know, to just bring them together and tell them, you know, God, they have assembled this team here for this moment and for this time. And it's a special group of people and a special group of coaches. And this speech goes on and on. And he's just giving it every ounce of energy that he's got. He finally gets to the point, you know, where he's ready to send them out to do something. And so he gets ready to send them out for the first practice. And so he begins to shout out and he says, Scott, you go to the right field. Tim, you go to center field, and he begins to disperse them all across the field, and then he tells the rest of them, y'all line up at the on-deck circle. At which point, 17 little 8-year-old faces look at him like he just spoke Hebrew. <laughs> they have not a clue what he's talking about and what he means. And we've all been in that situation sometimes like that coach, haven't we? We have shared something. Maybe it's with our children. Maybe it's with our grandchildren. Maybe it's with folks that we work with, you know, people at school. We've shared this idea, this plan, this vision, this thought, and they just look at us like they're clueless. And truthfully, sometimes we've been on the clueless side, haven't we? Somebody has just poured all of this out, and we can tell they're real excited about it, but we don't know what they mean when they finish. Well, if you turn to 
John chapter 14. I think we see Jesus kind of in one of these moments like that. For three years, he has been teaching and sharing with his disciples. They have been with him basically every moment of every day as they go through this. And he's been showing them how to live and how to minister and how to deal with people and and how to share the love of God and how we're to act in each and every situation. And he's not only done it by example, but he's taken time out to teach them, to sit down, to talk with them, to show them what he desires and how God wants them to live and what all is supposed to take place. And he's been preparing them for this moment in time. At this time, when he's talking to them right now, he's right near the end of his life. He's getting ready shortly to go to the cross, and he's trying to prepare them for that once again, and he's sharing with them. He's told them, he said, in a little while, I'm going to be gone. I'm not going to be with you anymore. And so he's sharing all of this with them. And if you look back, he's, he, look back into uh, verse, to chapter uh, 12, in verse 44, and we see some of what he's trying to show them and teach them. I mean, he's pouring his heart out in this little uh, paragraph that he gives to us. And he says, The one who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And the one who sees me sees him who sent me. Now, all through his ministry, he's been trying to remind them that what he's doing is not in and of himself. He's doing the Father's will. He's doing what God wants. It's God's work through him. And so now he's telling them that again and down a little further into verse 49. He says, For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command as to what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is eternal life. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So he's continuing to teach them right up to the last moment. And now here he is in in chapter 14 and he's shared all of this with them. And he's telling them, I am going, I am leaving. And they go, we don't know what you're talking about. I mean, Thomas comes up and he goes, we, we don't know where you're going. And most of us know the story of Thomas. You know, he, he doesn't understand it all. And so he, Jesus shares with him that I, I, am, I don't know the way. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But then Peter comes back and he says, well, look, we know you're, you're leaving us. We, we got that. We understand that. He said, but we don't know how we're going to do what we need to do. We don't know how to handle it. So if we could just see the Father, then that'd be good enough. What did Jesus just told them? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. See, they're clueless. And Jesus is trying to share this with them, get them to grasp it. And so then he begins to share a little more, share once again, and try to get them to understand what's about to take place. Because they are, they're afraid. And, and, you know, that's natural. You can't blame them. They have walked with him now for three years. They have depended upon him. Now he's going to be gone. Now they're going to be called upon to do it themselves. And they say, we don't know what we're supposed to do. We don't know how we're going to accomplish. We've watched you. We've seen you do this. But how do we do that? We're, We're not capable of that kind of thing, Jesus. And let's read in verse 12 of chapter 14. He says, I assure you. The one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. So he says, don't worry about whether you're going to be able to do what I've done. You will do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these. Because I'm going to the Father. Whatsoever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. As you can imagine, this this passage of Scripture has caused some debate, some thought process going on in the church, trying to figure this out. I mean, Jesus says, not only are we going to do what he did, but we're going to do greater things than he did. 
Now, would most of you in here agree with me? Jesus did some pretty impressive things, right? And to think that we're going to do something greater, that really, on first glance, doesn't even make sense to us. But let's look at it and think about what he's saying. So he says, the expectation is this, that you are not only going to do what I did, but you're going to do greater works than that. And we're going to talk about that, but I want you to understand something in here, because in this verse right here, I think he shows something to us that puts us in the clueless side. Because I don't think you and I understand what Jesus means by the Christian walk. I think our concept, our understanding of being a Christian and walking as a Christian is quite a bit different than what Jesus meant. And by that, here's what I'm talking about. There are so many verses in the Bible in which we read them and think, that can't apply to me. We read them and we say, that, that can't be me. He must be talking about super Christians. Yeah, he's talking about the guy that has the cape on his back, not most of us who have a bib in the front. Yeah, that, that, that's that super extraordinary Christian that's out there. And you know, we can look at people, we, we look at them, we think, now, him, her, yeah, that, that's who Jesus is talking about in that passage. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. We sometimes talk about you in staff meetings. And most of the time, it's good. Not all of the time, but most of the time, it's good. And there's some of you that are sitting in here today that I'm going to be honest, when your name comes up, we just feel humbled. Because we look at you and in staff, we say, you know, that man, that woman is a whole lot better Christian than we are. That's some awesome people we got in our church. And we do. We have some awesome men and women in this church who serve the Lord so faithfully and so amazingly. You know, and we look at them, those are the kind of folks, that's a super Christian. But that God can't be talking about me in some of these. And so when we get that verse, you know, that we say, that can't be me, we kind of misread it, whether we intend to or not. And this is one of those. Because, you know, it talks here about the one who believes in me. And we read that and kind of think, well, he's talking about the one who has really exceedingly abundant, amazing faith and belief in God. That's the one that's going to be able to do these greater works than him. He's talking about, you know, the person who just has that close relationship with Jesus, far closer than what I, the average normal Christian, have. He can't be talking about me. And yet, what does it say? It doesn't say who, he who has exceeding abundant faith. It says he who believes in me. You see, what you and I so often want to categorize as the extraordinary Christian life I believe is just what Jesus says, it's the life. It's the walk with me. That's what it is. And so if we believe, he says, we have the ability to do everything that he did and far greater things than he. So let's not be clueless this morning. Let's listen to what Jesus says. And let's understand how he says this work. He gives that expectation that we're going to do greater things. And then he says, and here is how you're going to be able to do it. Because I am going to the Father. Jesus said, you're going to be able to accomplish all of this because I'm leaving. Now, that sounds strange, doesn't it? Particularly, it should sound strange to the disciples. I mean, they have depended on him for three years. You know, when they needed something, who did they run to? They ran to Jesus. When they didn't have a clue, they ran to Jesus. When they needed a miracle, went to Jesus. When they had, you know, loaves and fishes and a whole lot of people, what did they do? They ran to Jesus. 
And he says, but you're going to be able to do better things, more things, greater things, because I'm going to leave you. You've got to put that into the context of all that was happening. Because Jesus says, when I leave, I'm sending someone. I'm sending you the comforter, the counselor, the guide. I'm sending to you the Holy Spirit. And he says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. He's going to live in you. And because of the Spirit, you're going to be able to do greater things than I do. See, Jesus constantly throughout his ministry was reminding his followers that what I do, I do not of myself, I do in the Spirit. Doing the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Scripture tells us that during the time when Jesus walked here, the Spirit was with all of them. And the word that's used there with with is that he was walking alongside the disciples. But when Jesus left, the Holy Spirit came and was in them. And they were empowered to do the work that Jesus had been doing. To do the work that he had given to them. The task that he had now assigned is there because Jesus has gone to be with the Father. And the Holy Spirit has come to guide us. But greater works than Jesus did. You know, what does he mean by that? I don't think he means the quality of his works because, as we said, his works were pretty impressive in quality, weren't they? I mean, even the significant, significantly smaller ones, like turning water into wine, you know, that, that was one of his little miracles. That's still pretty good. I haven't been able to accomplish that one yet. How about you? You know, again, loaves and fishes, feeding 5,000. My wife and I are lucky to feed ourselves sometimes. But look at all that he did. Healing the disease. Driving out demons. Raising the dead. All pretty impressive. But I want you to notice something about him. And understand, I do think the miracles of Jesus were impressive. But by his limitations that he put on himself, they were all material. They were all local. And they were all temporary. What do I mean by that? They all have to do with the physical. Water to wine, feeding the 5,000, healing diseases, driving out demons, raising the dead. They're all physical. And they were all local. You know, when Jesus fed the 5,000 and provided that meal for them, it didn't provide a meal for the crowds that were gathered somewhere else doing something else. When he healed this man, he didn't heal everybody. They were all localized. And they were all temporary. Because even the raising of the dead, guess what happened to that person later? They died. It's all temporary. So Jesus says to us, ours will be greater. Because one, it's no longer localized. The reach of what we do goes out into all the world. We have the ability to take the gospel into all the world. Think about what took place just in the few years after Jesus died. You had 11 disciples left there, and those 11 guys were pretty much it. Most everybody else in the world would have to be categorized as lost, and yet within 300 years, the gospel had spread to all of the known world at that time. Why? Because the Holy Spirit came upon the people. 
upon the believers. And the reach stretched out. But also, the miracle that you and I can do this morning, can do this week, can do in our lifetime, is that we have the opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus. I want to read you a quote from John Phillips. It comes from his book, Exploring the Gospel of John. And he says, yes, it is a miracle to open a blind man's eyes. It's a greater miracle to open the eyes of his sin-blinded soul so that he can see beauty in Jesus. It's a miracle to cleanse a man of leprosy. It's a greater miracle to change a sinner so that he becomes pure in heart and life. It's a miracle to make a deaf man hear. It's a greater miracle to speak so that a person deaf to the gospel hears and obeys the message. It's a miracle to raise someone from the dead. It's a greater miracle to bring eternal life to someone dead in trespasses and sin. That is a ministry that God has given to you and me. That ministry of taking the message of salvation out there. And where we said the miracles that Jesus did, you know, were material and local and temporary. What we have in salvation is a message that is uh, everlasting. We have a message that is universal. Folks, you and I may not make the lame to walk. The deaf to hear and the blind to see. But we can tell somebody about a Savior that loved them so much that He came to earth and lived a sinless life so that He could die on the cross a perfect sacrifice. Pay the price for sin by shedding His blood for us. You can tell them about a Savior who loved them so much that He gave His life to pay the price for their sins so that they might have everlasting life, that they might have forgiveness, so that they might have their slate wiped clean, and they might have everlasting, eternal life with Jesus. Folks, if you don't understand what a miracle that is, you don't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do we execute that? I mean, okay, we, we may be starting to get a clue now. We're starting to understand what some of this is all about. But how do we do that? How do we go out in that power and in that ability where we follow the example of Jesus? Remember again, Jesus tried to show his disciples over and over again that it wasn't what he was doing, it's what the Father was doing. Jesus' entire life was allowing the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit to flow through him to bring about these miracles through the direction of the will of God the Father. See, Jesus never acted independently of God the Father. He always acted dependently. He always sought God's will in all of that. 
He says, what I say, how I speak, what I do, is what the Father tells me to do and say. Well, how did he know what the Father told him to do and say? He prayed. Throughout Scripture, that's what we see Jesus doing so often, is down on his knees in prayer. Praying and seeking God's will so that he would know what to do next. And that's what God calls upon us to do. The Holy Spirit comes upon us and ministers through us to carry out the will of the Father. And he says, we know the will of the Father by prayer. Look at the last part, verse 14 there again. Or verse 13 and 14, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now this is a verse of Scripture that has been corrupted a lot in Christian life. Because we want to take that thing of praying in the name of Jesus and make it like a spiritual key that gets our prayers answered, don't we? For instance, this morning, I would like to be able to say that when I get home, my air conditioning is miraculously working in the name of Jesus. I'll be honest, I wish it would work this morning. I wish that would be the key. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about knowing the will of the Father. Living our lives in the will of the Father. Saying what we say in the will of the Father. It is being like Jesus. And when we are nestled in the will of God the Father, Jesus said, your prayers will be answered. Because you're asking not for what you want, but for what God desires. See, and you're finding out how God wants you to work. And be careful of that. Because I think there are a whole lot of us that will use phrases like, I don't feel led to do that. And we really haven't asked God anything about it. But seek the will of the Father. A sign of life today is worn out knees. How many of us in here today have worn out knees from prayer? Be honest, my knees are in pretty bad shape. I need surgery on both of them, but it didn't come from praying, I'm sorry to say. I wish I, had, I, wish I could say, my knees are in this bad a shape because I've been on them so much praying. But that'd just be an out and out lie. That's not true. I don't pray enough. I'm not yielded enough to Jesus. I was talking with Randy this week, and I was telling him, I said, you know, I'm having a hard time getting this message together. And I jokingly said, I said, maybe it's because my prayer life's not what it ought to be. Then I got to thinking about it later in the week and thought, you know, maybe that wasn't a joke. My prayer life is not what it ought to be. And I've discovered very few of us that have one that is. Not in the vein of what God is telling us here. Not like that. So we're talking about worn out needs and we're talking about living a yielded life. You know, we use a lot of words that I sometimes think we don't really think through all that it means. And I'm a big believer in dictionaries. And I think that may come from when I was a kid. My mom, whenever I asked her how to spell something, she told me to... Look it up in the dictionary, which still haven't figured out how you do if you don't know how to spell it anyway. 
But I went to the dictionary and looked up the word yielded or yield. And I want you to listen. Because there are several definitions that we think of right away. There's one that maybe you haven't thought of in the context of living a yielded life. One is to surrender or submit to a superior power. That fits with living a yielded life for Jesus, doesn't it? To give way to influence. We give away to the influence of our Savior. To give place or precedence. We give Jesus the right place in our lives. To give way to force so as to move or to bend. We allow Jesus to move us and bend us and mold us into what he wants us to be. Here's the one I want you to hear this morning because it made me stop and think. To give a return as for labor expended. Now we use the term in gardening sometimes, don't we? You know, you may have gotten a good yield of tomatoes this year in your tomato crop. And some of you may have said, well, I should. I expended a lot of energy to get it. I, I planted them, I fertilized them, I cultivated them, I watered them, I took care of them, I spent, every, I spent more time with my tomatoes than I did my wife. I should get a good yield. There was a lot expended to get that yield. And folks, I want to say to you this morning, there was a lot expended for you and for me. God's Son left heaven and came to earth and died the most cruel death imaginable on the cross. That was all expended for you and for me. What kind of yield is God seeing for His expenditure? What has it produced in your life and in my life? That's the question for us today. Do we have worn out knees? Are we living a yielded life? Are we doing those things that are greater than even the things that Jesus did. Worn out knees. A yielded life. What's God saying to your heart this morning? Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, We bow before you this morning. My prayer is that each one of us in this auditorium at this very moment are listening to your voice. Listening as you speak to us, Lord, individually about our yield, about our lives about what we're producing. And Father, I pray today that some of us will realize that we haven't surrendered to You in the way that we need to. We haven't given You the control that we need to give You. And so it's keeping us from producing 
the things that you want to produce in our lives. But Father, I know also there's some of us sitting in this very auditorium today who have never yielded our lives to Jesus. You've never surrendered to Him. Never accepted the gift of salvation. Never had your life changed. And Father, I pray today that they'll open up. Because Lord, Your Word tells us that You're there at the door of their heart. Today they have to yield and let that door open. And let You come in. And Father, I pray that they'll allow that to happen this morning and experience the miracle of salvation. Whatever I need today, Lord, we ask You to show us. And Father, we acknowledge that You are the meter of every need. It's in Your name that we pray. Amen.